Good morning. I'll be sharing this morning's scripture. Um, you can follow along on the screens. It's found in Acts 21, beginning in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, they began, became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by <clears throat> and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen, for reading that for us. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to get to uh, bring God's word for us this morning uh, from Acts chapter 22 here. Well, let me start my sermon with a question for us this morning. How many of you feel today more uncomfortable being a Christian than you did maybe five years ago? Maybe even two years ago? Now, we're not going to take a show of hands here this morning, but I'd imagine that a large majority of us might say, yes, I I do. I, I feel more uncomfortable being a Christian in my context and life now than I did five years ago. And it certainly was uncomfortable for Paul in Jerusalem to proclaim the message of Christianity. Now, this passage that we're going to look at this morning picks up halfway through a story, which Pastor Benjamin preached the first half for us last week. And in this story, as we've been told it so far, the Apostle Paul has been compelled by the Spirit of God to come to Jerusalem and share the good news of Jesus with his countrymen, the Jews. And Paul arrives in Jerusalem at the time of the festival of Pentecost. Now, the festival of Pentecost was one of these three Jewish festivals where Jewish men scattered all over would come make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, these men who had come to Jerusalem, most of them, or a good many of them, had met Paul already. They knew him from his Jewish reputation, and they knew him now as the converted preacher who had gone around from city to city proclaiming this good news of salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to Gentiles as well. And they were not too keen on that message. And this this kind of spirit of animus against Paul leads the crowd to falsely accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden, and they start to beat him. And so the Roman officials run in and they rescue Paul from this mob, and that's where we pick up this morning, as these Roman soldiers are carrying Paul back up the steps of the temple complex to the barracks that were located back behind the temple. In this story, both the Jewish mob and the Roman soldiers are suspicious of Paul and his message, if not outright in opposition to it. 
And into this volatile climate, Paul gives what he calls in chapter 22, verse 1, a defense of his message, a defense of the good news, or at least he starts to give one. He's interrupted. In, in, in the closing section of, of these final chapters in the book of Acts, we're going to see two more of these defense-style speeches. And, and just as an aside, Luke, as the author of Acts, is putting these defense speeches in there so that people who are suspicious or skeptical of Christianity might be convinced of its validity. That's why Paul was preaching them, and that's why Luke spends so much time here at the end of the book of Acts as Paul goes from leader to leader testifying of the good news of the gospel. Now, while our climate today may not be exactly the same as first century Jerusalem, we do live in an age where people are at least suspicious of Christianity. People may not be overtly opposed to the good news of Jesus. We may not be suffering persecution, but this message is certainly alien and looked upon skeptically by many in our world today. And when following Jesus gets uncomfortable, we are tempted to start compromising. But in giving his defense this morning, the Apostle Paul models for us in our age today how Christians should live and share our hope in an era that is suspicious of Christianity. And so this morning, that's what I want us to take from this passage, to learn from the Apostle Paul three ways in which we can live as Christians and share our hope in an era suspicious of Christianity. The first way in which Paul models this for us is the way in which we're to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, this, this scene here that, that Kristen read for us from Acts 21 and 22, it's a scene of pure chaos. You have mob violence, slander, confusion, hatred, false accusations, all put up in a blender and shaken together. Nobody knows what's going on. And yet, surrounded by this chaos, there stands the Apostle Paul. Look with me, if you will. We're going to read again, um, starting at the beginning of our passage, 21, verse 37. If you would, look down with me there. Chapter 21, verse 37 says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now, now let's pause there for a second. This accusation by the Roman leader shows just how confusing and chaotic these events really are and how nobody really knows what's going on trying to figure out the truth of this thing. So when, when the Roman leader hears that Paul is speaking Greek, he assumes that Paul was this Egyptian false prophet. Now, we think about the, the year AD 54, which was a few years before these events took place here in Acts 21, that there was this Egyptian false prophet who came in and stirred up this Jewish radical terrorist group called the Assassins. That's a pretty cool name. Uh, 
And, and this group would literally go into crowds of Jewish people, and they would come behind people's backs and stab them if they thought they had Roman sympathies. This group was intense. So this Egyptian false prophet stirs up this group to go follow him up onto the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple. And he said, God was going to bring down the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They were going to march in and overthrow the Romans. And sure enough, the Romans caught wind of this, thought, we don't really like this plan. And they went in and wiped out a lot of those Jewish men. And this, Jew, this Egyptian guy, this false prophet who stirred all this up, escaped. All that to say, the only way that the Roman leader can make sense of the hatred and animus that the Jewish people have towards Paul is he must be this guy that stranded a bunch of Jews for dead and lied to them and then ran away. That's the only way he can explain this hatred. Let's keep reading. Paul replies to these accusations, verse 39. I am a Jew from Tarshish in Calicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul responds in this chaotic scenario, in this false accusation, by calmly explaining that he is actually a man of Jewish descent from this city called Tarshish. But not only that, Paul desires to turn around and speak to this mob who had just beaten him to a pulp. Now, if that were you, and you were the Apostle Paul in that situation, and you got the chance to turn around and speak to that crowd, what would you say? (laughs) I'd imagine... I would have some choice words for that crowd. Uh, Maybe a few hand gestures, right? (laughs) But the Apostle Paul is unwavering in his goal to proclaim the gospel to his fellow Jewish people. What Paul does here cannot be explained except as courageous love for his enemies. The very heartbeat of Jesus' life and mission And this heart is reflected all throughout this defense speech. So he calls these men fathers and brothers in verse 1. He speaks to them in their own language, verse 2. He makes clear his own Jewish heritage and his love for God and his law in verses 3 through 5. And he tells them his own story of how he even persecuted Christians to the death. In other words, Paul is drawing near and doing everything that he absolutely can, even after this mob has beaten him up, so that they will understand the gospel. This is courageous love for his enemies. Church, the world ought to be amazed by our love and level-headedness, not just in the midst of skepticism, but also in the midst of fierce opposition. When following Jesus gets uncomfortable, it can be easy to compromise his teaching about loving our enemies. But Jesus calls us to something so different than this world. This reminds me of of Paul's words to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, where he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And if I could If I could name a theme verse for the church in our age, that might be it. 
And if you, look, if you were to be looking at your Bible right now at Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, and you would see a footnote, most likely, over that word reasonableness. And if you look down in your Bible, you would see that the word reasonableness can also be translated gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. You see, the call to reasonableness is not necessarily a call to defend your Christian faith with airtight logic. Although we should make efforts to make a rational defense of our faith. But what it is, is a call to proclaim the gospel even to our enemies as we display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Is your life marked with reasonableness? Are are there areas of your life where you are putting up barriers to the gospel? Where people are being offended not at the truth of what you proclaim, but at something that you put up in its place by the way that you live? Are you quick to listen and slow to speak? Does your social media account of choice ooze patience, gentleness, and self-control? Is your tone and attitude with family members or coworkers or neighbors who, are, who oppose Christianity, is, is your tone reasonable? Is it gentle? Do you seek to draw near? And here's the encouragement for us in this. We may do everything right in this regard, and yet people may still not listen. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. We may still end up getting shut up and shut out. But we are not people of pragmatism. We're not called to win a culture war at all costs. We're called to be gentle, kind, faithful witnesses to Jesus, no matter what the world may do. We are called to defend without being defensive. That's the first way that Paul models for us how to live as Christians in an era suspicious of Christianity. The second way is that we are to not scratch itching ears. Now, that's going to make a lot more sense, I hope, in six minutes or so for all of you. But don't scratch itching ears. Well, let's look at, we just talked about how the crowd doesn't receive Paul's message. Let's read that portion of our passage together again so it's fresh In our mind, we're going to start in chapter 22, verse 21, if you'll look at your Bibles with me. It says, And he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word, now mark that, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not even be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. This mall, or yeah, this mob was tracking with Paul until he brought up the word Gentiles. And as the text says in verse 22, at that very word, they stopped listening to him. Pastor Benjamin brought this point out in his sermon last week 
But this passage stresses to us how much these Jewish men did not want to reckon with the truth. Just like when that Gentile man, Trophimus, was in the temple and they jumped to conclusions that Paul had brought him there and started this first riot, here again, the mob hears the word Gentile and they assume that Paul is a Roman-loving, anti-Jewish, anti-law compromiser and they go nuts and they say he shouldn't even be allowed to live. The moment they hear something they don't want to hear, they start rioting. You could say Paul tweets something or speaks up in a boardroom meeting and because of one word, he gets canceled. And yet notice how Paul calmly and reasonably does not stand down from the truth that he knows will offend this mob. He knows God's heart for the Gentiles. He knows that God is extending the promises of the gospel to them. And even though the crowd does not want to hear it, he is not going to stand in the way of the truth of the gospel. He doesn't change its message even when he knows it will challenge people. And this passage makes me think of Paul's final charge to Timothy right before he goes to his death. So if you would, put a finger in Acts 22 and flip with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 here in 2 Timothy 4. This is Paul's final charge to this young pastor, Timothy, before he eventually goes to his death. And listen to how this charge is the ethos of Paul's ministry, even back here in Acts 22. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now here's our key verse here, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul did not just preach those words. He lived those words. And church, just like in Paul's day, We live in a day with sinful people just like them. People who just want to have their ears scratched. People who just want to be taught things that affirm what they already think and believe and desire. And if you speak the truth of the gospel, you genuinely do risk being canceled and shunned. When following Jesus gets uncomfortable, it can be easy to compromise our commitment to what is true. And yet Paul shows us that we must stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Now I get a sense from being a pastor here at this church that we as a people are are zealous and largely equipped to do just that. Many of you here care deeply about the goodness of the historic truths of the Christian faith and are prepared to continue to uphold them even when it's hard. And you believe, as I do, that these are the truths that God has designed for us to flourish, 
for human beings to really be who we were meant to be. And I'm so encouraged by that personally, and I love that about our church. I love that our church loves to hear the Bible taught. It's encouraging as a pastor. And I would encourage you today, continue to hold fast to the confession of your faith, even as Benjamin just read from Jude. Even in the midst of the fear of the unknown, even in the midst of doubts that may linger for you, maybe you're wrestling through questions, bring them before Jesus. Continue to hold to the faith. And with that said, let me draw out one more point of application for us here. In order for us to stand for the truth, we also need to be people who are willing to hear the truth. There is much for us to learn from the challenges of other people. But in standing up for the truth, it can be easy for us to become our own type of mob who mute people who say things that we don't want to hear. Who when they say that one word or that one phrase like Gentile, we shut them off and tune them out. I'm afraid that in standing for the truth, we might become proud truth hawks who who jump to conclusions and cancel people who might push back on us or maybe even might use different terminology than we do around something. Even fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, we might miss the opportunity to be further refined in the truth ourselves. This is the case for those who have different uh, theological beliefs than you do. Or those who have a different understanding about the way that Christians engage in different contemporary issues in our culture than you do. Because the reality is, speaking the truth into an echo chamber is useless because you're the only one who's going to hear it. I'm afraid that we as a committed Bible-believing church in this age will use our stand for truth as a way to boost our feelings of self-righteousness. Lord, thank you that I am not like that LGBTQ rights activist. And this is where we all need the gospel. The beauty of what Paul proclaims, what happened to him on the road to Damascus. See, Paul does not stand aloof from this crowd or above them in judgment. Paul was once part of the mob. Paul stood by as Stephen was stoned. Paul persecuted Christians, and yet Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and told him the truth. And said, why are you persecuting me? And the truth knocked him back. And it humbled him. Church, the truth of the gospel ought to do that to all of us. We should be the most receptive toward critique. Toward hearing the truth. Because the truth of Jesus Christ ought to humble us. And I would just say as an aside before we move on. If you are among us this morning. And you're somebody who is not a Christian. Or maybe you're somebody who used to say you were a Christian and now you kind of don't know or you're kind of figuring things out. I just want to say that if this is how you've experienced Christians, as people who use the truth as a weapon of their own self-righteousness, we are sorry. 
We do not want that to be the message that you hear from Jesus. And we're trying to follow our Savior here together. And maybe you've heard that from our church. And if you have, we're sorry. We're trying to follow Jesus, and we're still figuring a lot of things out like you are. So I pray that you'd be gracious with us, and we're going to try our best to be gracious with you. This is a hard age to figure out what is true. I wrestle with that constantly. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. and He will confront us and show us what's true. So may we ourselves as a church not have itching ears, and may we be willing to be humbled by confrontational truth. Lastly, the way that we defend our hope in an age suspicious of Christianity is we utilize our past and position. Utilizing our past and position. So as I mentioned uh, above, Paul here in the, in the, in the middle recounts his, the story of his conversion in his defense of the gospel. Now, this, this might sound familiar, and that's because a large section of this is taken verbatim from Acts chapter 9 when Luke records Paul's conversion for us. And Paul repeats it here in chapter 22, and then he repeats it again in chapter 26 of the book of Acts when he gives his defense. And this is interesting. The exact same story is told three times, and Paul tells his own story twice. And what we learn from this is that Paul used the way that God changed his life to communicate to others how God might change theirs too. And this shows us the beauty of how God redeems the sin in our past and the sin in our life stories to be used to relate to other people in bringing them the good news of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great Christian thinker, has this great line about friendship that I think we can apply here to our sharing of of the gospel in this way. He says that, that true friendship happens when you say to someone, No way, me too. Where there's this shared interest where you realize, me too. And in sharing the gospel like Paul does, we do that same thing. And I'm so encouraged. One of of my favorite things about our church is getting to know some of you and be be in one another's lives long enough where I start to hear you talk about the way that Jesus changed your life and relate that to other people and help them experience the grace of Jesus. It's beautiful to hear people say, I I once was proud and arrogant, and yet Jesus changed me, and he's still changing me. Or "I I once struggled with sexual sin as you do, and yet Jesus changed me and is changing me. It's a beautiful thing. And God does not waste those parts of our life stories, but uses them to bring the good news to other people. And not only that, not only does Paul use his past for the sake of the gospel, but he also leverages his current status and position for the sake of the gospel. Let's read uh, the last five verses of our text, starting in verse 24 all the way down to verse 29. 
And let's look at how Paul here specifically uses his position as a Roman citizen. Starting in verse 24. It says, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, in order to understand what's going on here rightly, we have to understand that that Roman citizenship was a hot commodity in the first century. It it was not very easy to acquire, and it elevated your social status significantly. So much so that that what what is implied in verse 28, where the Roman commander buys his citizenship is that he actually bribed somebody in the Roman government. There was really no avenue to legally buy your citizenship. It was so valuable that this commander had bribed someone with cash to get the citizenship. And among other privileges, citizenship meant that you could not be flogged and detained without cause. So that's why Paul slyly says, when they're about to whip him, he's like, now wait a minute. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? And it's like the the record screeches, you know, and the guy's like, what? And he runs out and they, they get freaked out because they almost did something that could have been detrimental to their career. Citizenship came with huge privileges. And now think about this for a second. Paul only invokes this privilege twice in the books of book of Acts. He could have used this time and time again for his own advantage. He could have claimed it just to do or get things he wanted or to be given a position of prominence whenever he walked into a new city. But he saw his present status in society as a tool to be leveraged for the gospel. Everything in his life was subservient to the mission of seeing others meet Jesus. Everything that he had been given by God was a tool to be used for the gospel. And what we learn from this is that our talents, our passions, our country of origin, our language, where we live, where we work, our possessions, all of these things that God has given us are not without a purpose. God gave you those things for the furthering of his gospel. But you see, when following Jesus gets uncomfortable, it can be easy to use these things to seek our own advantage. And so what Paul's example shows us is that we ought to use these things in our life that God has given us generously, not for our own advantage, but strategically to draw near to others with the good news of the gospel. And I'll just say this. That as it gets more 
uncomfortable to follow Jesus, as, as things start to get a little bit more difficult, I think the best witness for the gospel is going to be when people can look at our lives and say, man, I, I think they really do think that Jesus is Lord. Like everything in their life is being used in such a way that if Jesus pointed at anything and said, I want you to pick that up and use it for me today, they'd be like, okay. I think that's going to be the best witness in our time. And you see, this only makes sense for Paul to treat his citizenship this way and to not seek his own advantage in using it because this is precisely what Jesus did for him. You see, Paul is not our ultimate model to follow. Jesus is our ultimate model to follow in this. Jesus did not use his citizenship in heaven as something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself a servant. Even whenever people not only were suspicious of him, but opposed him to his death, Jesus disadvantaged himself so that we might be brought into his kingdom. Jesus used what had been placed in his hand by his father for the good of other people. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so, church, in an age when people are growing more suspicious of the message we preach, maybe even hostile, we need to follow our Lord Jesus in this path of servanthood and of giving up our advantage for the sake of other people. May we defend the good news by proclaiming it with how we lay down our lives in service to his kingdom purposes. And may the world have their suspicion and hostility melt by the spirit of God, by the way that we serve other people and disadvantage ourselves. That, I think, is the best way, and the way that Paul teaches us, that we can proclaim our hope in an era of suspicion. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that you did not count your equality with God something to be held on to for your own advantage, but that you made yourself a servant for us. And now, Lord, we know that as we march on in our age, trying to follow you, trying to serve you, trying to follow in your example, that you sit at the right, the right hand of our God in power and you empower us by your spirit. You cheer us on in our servanthood. So Lord Jesus, may we draw hope from that ourselves and may we be faithful witnesses to your good news even when it's hard even when it costs us everything, because we love you and we love others more than we love even our own life. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.